This podcast was made possible by our Leadership Circle members, Becky Morgan, Randy Pond, Lisa Sonsini, and Silver Lake. Special thanks to our 2020 Exemplary Leadership Award sponsors, Friends of Sing Kung, Friends of Webb McKinney, Eris Communications, Deloitte, and HP Inc., and to our Truth, Love, and Reconciliation Dialogue Series sponsor, Destination Home. Welcome to The Dialogue. I'm Suzanne St. John Crane. Okay, friends, welcome. I'm going to turn my camera on and we're going to start our event today. Um, so wonderful to, to see you all uh, here. And as we uh, come into the Zoom room, uh, just wanted to welcome everybody and say that we're delighted to have you here. Uh, ALF fellows, senior fellows, leaders from across the valley and beyond. This is our first installment of ALF's Truth, Love and Reconciliation Dialogue Series. I'm Suzanne St. John Crane, CEO of the Silicon Valley chapter and chair of the National ALF uh, Board of Directors. Honored to be in that role this year. So just so you know, for the folks that are, are visiting, uh, ALF's made up of 10 chapters, 4,500 senior fellows across the country, 740 here in Silicon Valley. Our mission is to join and strengthen diverse leaders, creating and supporting networks for good. And our chapter's goal is to see more courageous, diverse networks co-creating a more equitable and thriving Silicon Valley. So a couple housekeeping notes here. We are recording our our. Um, uh, Ian's presentation, Ian Haney Lopez's presentation, and we will come back to recording at the very end after our small group breakouts. Uh, and we will be creating a podcast that uh, uh, will be available to folks uh, to listen later. Wanna thank our sponsors for whom we would not be here uh, today. Our Truth, Love and Reconciliation sponsors, as you see on the screen, Applied Materials, City of San Jose, Google and Sobrato Philanthropies, so grateful for their support. And today's special event sponsors, Destination Home and Abode Services, as well as additional support you can see there provided by a variety of local organizations uh, who care deeply about, uh, about this topic and about this dialogue. Well, I wanna start out today with a land acknowledgement as a way to recognize our interconnectedness and responsibilities across history and in our multicultural community today. Across Silicon Valley, we are on the land of the Ohlone. And Ian is in Hawaii, uh, in uh, an indigenous space ceded to the United States under protest and whose original people are today identified as Native Hawaiians. Uh, as we gather for the purpose of leadership for the common good, let's all remember that to create a truly inclusive uh, community and democracy, we all need to work to unpack our history of colonialism and dismantle current systems of injustice so that everyone in our community can thrive. So why truth, love and reconciliation is a theme? <laughs> I get that question. We talked about that as a staff and after the year we had of 2020, my friends, um, you know, I wanted to challenge us all, senior fellows and community leaders, uh, to consider a few questions in your journey this year in 2021. Can I hear other people's truths? Can I suspend judgment? And do I seek to understand? Mm -hmm. And love, love is a radical response to the moment that we're in right now. Love is not complicit, it is courageous. So can we lead with love in 2021? <clears throat> and reconciliation, the power of the apology, rebuilding trust and relationships and systems. 
what do we need to do to confront, can we actually confront, hear, process, and heal from uh, as individuals and as a community this year? So tonight's dialogue allows us to really dive into that theme with, with both feet. And we're just delighted to have Ian Henny Lopez and our panelists here. Um, this is one of the most urgent issues in Silicon Valley, and, uh, and we're, we're just delighted that you joined us this evening. I want to remind folks in particular who are new to an ALF dialogue, because we have opened this up to some more community leaders and influencers, and we're delighted to have you here. This is an ALF space, and we ask that you uh, come to it with a beginner's mind a little bit, right? Suspending judgment, seek to understand and learn, uh, really practice that challenge that we have for folks in 2021. And that includes really being thoughtful about how we show up in our dialogues today and in the chat, certainly. Um, so without any further ado, uh, I'm happy to turn the evening over to our moderator for this evening. ALF Senior Fellow Fred Ferrer is currently chairing the City of San Jose Charter Review Commission. And as former CEO of the Health Trust, uh, he worked closely, of course, with Destination Home and the Santa Clara County Community Plan to End Homelessness. Fred is now CEO of Child Advocates of Silicon Valley, and it's a very proud, proud, proud member of class 11. Way back there, Fred. <laughs> Take it away. Good to see you, friend. Thank you, Suzanne, and good evening to everyone. I'm delighted to be here and join my fellow ALF members, as well as our guests from the community. Um, tonight, as Suzanne said, we have a packed agenda, so I'm going to try to keep us moving along uh, expeditiously, but let me tell, talk a little bit about our purpose tonight. Tonight, really, our purpose is twofold. Uh, first, it's really deepening our understanding of dog whistling and the consequences it has on people of color and low-income communities, and what's that impact on our whole community as we grow in terms of the inequities that we face here in Silicon Valley in terms of our housing crisis. And secondly, it's really for us to be learners, to become better informed consumers of the public message, of the media's messages, of the messages of political campaigns, news reports, social media, all the different ways that we communicate with each other here in Silicon Valley and around the world, so that we can become stronger decision makers as voters, as civically engaged community members, and as really leaders of institutions and communities here within our valley. Tonight, we're going to have a, uh, a great talk uh, from a distinguished professor from UC Berkeley, who's gonna start us off with, with a discussion of what is dog whistling? Um, and from a researcher's perspective, what is this learning and knowing about that topic? We're gonna then move to a panel. We have three excellent guests so that we can take this um, the professor's work in terms of the scholarly approach and then bring it to what is the local perspective here and give some examples of the challenges that we face here. And then in the ALF tradition, we will enter small groups for a dialogue about what you've heard from Professor um, Lopez as well as from our, our panel. Um, and then we'll come back to hear from each other. And then finally, we'll have the next steps in our closing comments and we're gonna ask the professor to give us a homework assignment in terms of giving us kind of what is the call to action? What is the kind of the next steps that, are, um, that we are able to make as a community, um, as a collective? At this time, I'd have the distinct honor and pleasure of introducing our guest speaker for tonight. Um, professor Ian Haney Lopez teaches in the areas of race and constitutional law um, and is, is the director of racial politics project 
and the Haas Institute for Fair and Inclusive Society. He is the Chief Justice Earl Warren Professor of Public Law at UC Berkeley and the author of Dog Whistle Politics, How Coded Racial Appeals Have Reinvented Racism and Wrecked the Middle Class. He's an author of a number of books and I, in our prep working, uh, work, working with Ian, I know that you're gonna find this to be an incredibly interesting, informative um, and rich um, um, materials in order for us to have that same rich dialogue. So, Professor, I'm going to turn it over to you. Um, thank you for coming, and welcome to our ALF event. Terrific, Fred. Thank you so much, and thank you, Suzanne, for that warm welcome, and also to Akimi, who's been terrific in helping helping to set all of this up. I'm really glad to join you this evening. Um, ignore the screen save, uh, the the virtual background. It's a very sophisticated one. It looks a lot like palm trees waving in the winds mm -hmm. in tropical Hawaii, but it's not true. I'm locked in my office at UC Berkeley. Please don't tell my dean otherwise. So I'm just going to start with that. Again, very sophisticated virtual background I've got going. Um, next up, I need to share my screen. So let me do that. And then let me see if this is working. And I'm, I'm gonna just judge from these little postage size faces and everybody's face looks calm, um, especially Akimi's, Akimi looks, Akimi looks calm. So I'm thinking this is working. Okay, so I wanna talk about dog whistle politics. And I think a lot of us um, are saying, well, you know, dog whistle politics, that's the use of coded terms to trigger racial anxiety, but the point is the code that allows plausible deniability. And a lot of us, if we know the term, we might say, yeah, that's so 2012, that we're so far past that now. It's not really dog whistling. Um, but I'm gonna show you some research I've done in 2017 and then again in 2020, uh, just this past summer that suggests that we really still are in an era of dog whistling. And not only that, dog whistling is far more convincing than you think it is, um, which is pretty depressing. Um, so I wanna reassure you, I'm not gonna leave us on that downbeat note. Um, I really also want to talk about how to build a decent society and what this sort of research implies for us. Um, and to communicate that, that my research into dog was a politics, um, you know, I wrote about it as a scholar, but then I started hiring communication specialists and pollsters and running focus groups because I really wanted, under, wanted to understand how to beat it, how we can bring people together um, and how in coming together, we can take care of each other. So this is this phrase, how we might build a decent society. Um, let me add a plug for a book that's just come out by one of my collaborators, Heather McGee. She's got a new book out. Um, it's just out this week. It's called The Sum of Us. I, I'm sure by next week it will be announced that it's a New York Times bestseller. She's amazing. It's terrific. Um, but Heather starts her book by asking, why can't we have nice things? And this is the question. Um, um, how, can, how can we have nice things? We don't have nice things because of dog whistling. We can have nice things if we figure out how to build a multiracial progressive majority. And so this is really um, what I'm gonna be talking about. First thing I'm gonna show you, I'm gonna, I'm gonna 
play a slide. And, and what the slide does is it has a message that is a, essentially a message taken from the talking points of Donald Trump. This is a message that we tested in 2017. Um, as it plays, this is a dial test. So you're going to see people are invited to listen to the message and then twist the dial up if they feel warmly towards the message, down if they feel coldly or dislike the message. So it's this is a a, a test that's designed to measure people's moment-to-moment -moment reactions. One thing you could do is you could listen to the message and watch these lines squiggle across the slide. I don't recommend it because in some ways, if you're watching the lines, you're not just sitting with the message. So I'd rather that you um, maybe even close your eyes and just listen to the message. And as you're listening to the message, ask yourself, does this sound like the dog whistling, like the political speech that's out there? And then maybe ask yourself a second question. Who really believes this stuff? And then when you open your eyes, when the message is done, you can see the lines and we will talk exactly about who does believe this stuff. Okay, so if you're willing, uh, close your eyes. Um, here we go. Our leaders must prioritize keeping us safe and ensuring that hardworking Americans have the freedom to prosper. Taking a second look at people coming from terrorist countries who wish us harm or at people from places overrun with drugs and criminal gangs is just common sense. And so is curbing illegal immigration so our communities are no longer flooded with people who refuse to follow our laws. We need to make sure we take care of our own people first, especially the people who politicians have cast aside for too long to cater to whatever special interest groups line their pockets, yell the loudest, or riot in the street. Terrorists who mean us harm, illegal aliens, uh, people rioting in the streets. But now look at the results. So... That bottom line, the yellow line, we call that the advocates. Those are people who work in progressive politics professionally. They're paid to work in progressive politics. They're union organizers, for example, or they work for grassroots organizations. They hated this message. But now let's talk about some of these other groups. So we have base, opposition, and persuadable. And we have numbers in parentheses. The base, we, we, we describe that as our progressive base. So our progressive base are people who feel warmly towards people of color, people who believe government should regulate the marketplace, people who believe that um, uh, the economy is, is, um, uh, reflects people's situation more than, people's economic success reflects their situation more than their individual effort. And this is like progressives. The opposition is the, is the way we're describing a very conservative mindset, doesn't like people of color, thinks that government is the problem, thinks that wealthy people are wealthy because they worked hard and poor people are poor because they didn't, right? And if you look at those numbers, about 23% of the national sample are progressives, about 18% are, uh, uh, are, these, are these more reactionary voters. That's in about equipoise between the two, 59% are people we describe as persuadable. Notice we don't use the word centrist. They're not centrist. 
it's really remarkable when you when you look at how people think politically. Most people combine incompatible, contradictory ideas, and they bounce back and forth between them. They can be persuaded to go in one direction or the other, as opposed to the mental image that a lot of us have, the people in the middle have considered the positions of both poles, weighed them, and, and melded them into some moderate new thing. That's not what's happening. We have coherent worldviews, which we often talk about as right and left. Um, the left view is um, pro-racial equality, pro-government regulation of the marketplace to build a middle class, um, convinced that all of us are working hard and hard work, almost all of us, and that, that's not really the, what makes a difference in terms of outcomes. The, the, the right is hostile towards people of color, hostile towards government, convinced that the economy is, in a, in a way, a moral barometer that those who succeed deserve to succeed, those who fail deserve to fail. Everybody else is kind of drawing on both sets of ideas. Now, even among the progressive base, they like this message, let alone the opposition. And then the persuadables feel really warmly towards this message. There's a purple line there for union households. That's important because unions do a lot of work trying to train their members uh, to identify um, and resist this sort of messaging. And they found it po positive. Now, um, just quickly, some of you may be saying to yourself, okay, but is this mainly among white folks? Is, is, this, is this what we're measuring when we talk about base, persuadable opposition? What's happening with people of color? Because surely people of color must listen to a language of uh, terrorists and illegal aliens and people who riot and see through it. So this is another way of measuring the persuasiveness of that message. This is a, after people heard the message, we asked them, how convincing did you find it on a scale of zero to 100? Anything above 50 is convincing. And what you're seeing there is 61% of whites described this message as convincing, but so, do, so too did 60% of Latinos and 54% of African-Americans. That solid black in the bottom those are people who said, gave it 100. They loved the message. And look again at that similarity across races. This is a really important message. I'm going to talk later about how we build cross-racial solidarity, how we defeat dog whistling. And so often I hear from racial justice folks, and I, I consider myself a racial justice person. This is where I'm coming from. But I hear back from my racial justice friends, aren't you just talking about how to message to white people? And I wish I could have this, this slide tattooed on my forehead. This is not how do we talk to white people. This is how do we talk to everybody in our society? Because these messages that, that promote racial fear, they're broadly convincing. And why are they so convincing? Because we've been listening to them since 1963. So I'm going back now. I'm going to do a very quick history. This, for me, is this incredibly chilling quote. This is Robert Novak, a conservative journalist. He's been attending uh, the Denver summer meeting of the Republican National Committee. And he comes out of that meeting, and he publishes a couple of different newspaper reports. And in one of them, he says, a good many, perhaps a majority of the Republican Party's leadership, envision substantial gold to be mined in the racial crisis by becoming, in fact, though not in name, the white man's party. 
what is going on here? So one thing we should be clear about is um, when he says the racial crisis, we might say the civil rights movement. Right? The black demands for equality for an end to Jim Crow is creating anxiety among whites. And when um, uh, Novak talks about the white man's party, we should be clear that in 1963, there was a white man's party, but it was not the Republican Party. It was the Southern wing of the Democratic Party. The Southern wing of the Democratic Party had up to that point clearly identified itself as the white man's party, and it had been using violence and fraud and legal mechanisms to make sure that African-Americans were all but completely disenfranchised. And what we have here is the Republican Party, which up to this point has been supportive of civil rights, saying we can win votes if we begin to appeal to those who are made anxious by civil rights. The other thing I want to highlight, by becoming in fact though not in name. This is the start of dog whistling. What the, what the Republican leadership is saying is, we're gonna use code, code that communicates to people that we are on the side of continued white dominance, but we're not gonna expressly call ourselves the white man's party. Um, the political figure that this is most closely associated with at the time is the person who's about to win the nomination to the, be the Republican candidate for president in 1964, and that's Barry Goldwater. And Goldwater is going to begin to talk about states' rights, for example, and freedom of association. States' rights sounds like an abstraction, federal-state relations, but in 1963, everybody understands it means the rights of Southern states to continue to use violence, state power, and custom to oppress and humiliate African-Americans, in, in, including through Jim Crow school segregation. Um, one other thing I want to say about Barry Goldwater, and this is important, I want to introduce a class element here, and it's going to come back. So Barry Goldwater is the son of a wealthy retail family in Arizona, and he hates the New Deal. He hates a vision in which Government regulates the marketplace, supports unions, um, su uh, supports workers, redistributes wealth downward and outward, provides ladders of upward mobility. In other words, he hates the New Deal, which has just over the last three decades at this point, created the largest expansion of the middle class the world had ever seen. And what Goldwater understands is that, st that style of government, New Deal liberal government is popular. And that's why it becomes important to him to look for an alternative vocabulary in which to campaign, not one that's expressly rooted in class conflict, but one that shifts the conversation to race. So now, next question. How does he do? He gets blown out of the water. It's a landslide for Lyndon Johnson. Lyndon Johnson in 1964 is campaigning and he just wipes the field with Barry Goldwater. And part of the reason is because Johnson is saying in 1964 that we, the United States, can end poverty in a dozen years. Johnson says, look, 12 years from now, it's going to be the bicentennial of this country. And what better way to mark 200 years of American history than by eliminating poverty? And he wins in a landslide. And the pundits at the time say, well, that's it. We're fundamentally a liberal country that believes in the power of activist government 
to regulate the marketplace in a way that facilitates the, the creation of a broad, robust, inclusive middle class. Though we also know that that New Deal government up to that point had been largely constrained by a color bar. The programs in the New Deal up to that point had mainly been designed to help whites. And Lyndon Johnson, by supporting civil rights, is also saying the programs that helped lift so many whites into the middle class should also be available to Mexican-Americans in the Southwest and to African-Americans across the country. And he was always careful to emphasize to whites in long neglected regions like the Appalachian Mountains. But in any event, Johnson is saying, we want to end poverty in a generation. He wins in a landslide. People are really you know, convinced that this is the future of our country. And yet, Barry Goldwater wins five, five states in the South, plus his home state of Arizona. And it's like an alarm bell in the night. Richard Nixon is the 1968 Republican candidate for president. He's not too sure if he should dog whistle, if he should attack civil rights. He begins to talk about what he considers the Southern strategy. He looks at Goldwater's success in the South and says, well, at least in the South, we should use that language. By 1970, number crunchers from both the Republican and Democratic Party are looking at what happened in the 68 election and they're saying, this dog whistling thing, this, this using code to appeal to racial fear, it works. And Nixon in 1970 pivots from previously moderate positions on civil rights and fully endorses dog whistling. Did it work? This is 1972. Richard Nixon, eight years after Lyndon Johnson has won in a landslide, Richard Nixon wins in an even bigger landslide. Now I know, and you know, that there's a lot going on in the 1972 election. This is much more than a story about race. There's Vietnam, there's the women's movement, there's campus unrest, there's the countercultural movement. All sorts of things are going on. Nevertheless, taking a large view of American history, we should be pretty clear. 1964 was a watershed year. It was a watershed year in the sense that that was the last year. Lyndon Johnson was the last Democratic candidate for president to win a majority of the white vote. No Democratic candidate for president has won a majority of the white vote since 1964. We should also be clear that today, Republican voters or, or voters for Republican presidential candidates, 90% of them are white. The Republican presidential candidates today draw their support from overwhelmingly from white voters. Nine out of 10 voters for Republican presidential candidates are white. 98%, 98% of Republican elected officials are white. In other words, in no, when Novak in 1963 said, that the Republican leadership decided they would build a white man's party in fact, though not in name, they built it. And when I say Republican voters for presidential candidates, and you might think to, to yourself, well, why doesn't he just say Trump? These are Mitt Romney's numbers. They didn't change with Donald Trump. This is what's happened. Now, 
I also want to be super clear. I don't think we I don't think we talk very often bluntly about the racial dynamics of our political system, our political party. And partly it's because of the um, theater of dog whistling. The theater of dog whistling is to use a phrase like states' rights that allows someone like Barry Goldwater to simultaneously appeal to racially anxious whites and to deny that he's doing so, to insist that he's simply talking about the appropriate relationship between the federal government and the states. Likewise, when somebody like me comes along and says, wow, this looks like the Republicans have adopted a racial strategy, I'm immediately met by a lot of Republicans saying, that's an outrageous lie. Of course we haven't. So every so often you get people like Michael Steele, who was um, former head of the Republican National Committee, who says, you know, actually that is what we did, right? And, and, and so these are these numbers. Here's the other clarification. Having built a white man's party, that doesn't mean people of color aren't also attracted to this sort of messaging. You've already seen that. It also doesn't mean that like all whites are folded into one category. In fact, you know, 40% of whites voted for the Democratic candidate, voted for Joe Biden in this past election. Still, on average, in recent presidential elections, three out of five whites are voting for the Republican candidate, right? So this is this racial dynamic that we really have to grapple with. One other big caveat, and this also goes to why these dog whistle messages are so um, convincing, are so familiar to people and so convincing. The Democrats struggled to figure out how to beat Republican dog whistling. And so they adopted a, if you can't beat them, join them strategy. They began to imitate Republican dog whistling. Welfare as a way of life. Well, who are the welfare queens? Um, a crackdown on crime. Who are the super predators and the gang bangers? Um, one other thing that I want to emphasize here. Notice the way that Clinton also talked about cutting government spending. So there was three themes. There was welfare, there was crime, cutting government spending. That's what I want to turn to next. We think that dog whistling is primarily about mobilizing racial resentment, and certainly it's that. But remember what Barry Goldwater's motivation was. Barry Goldwater wanted to use race as a way to win an election so that he could overturn New Deal-style liberal government. One of his spokespersons back in 1963 and 1964 was Ronald Reagan. And Ronald Reagan, when he campaigned and ran for office in California, and then when he later campaigned and won office uh, as president of the United States, he carried forward not only Barry Goldwater's racial appeals. It's, it's Reagan who would talk about welfare queens incessantly. But he also carried forward Goldwater's antipathy to a style of government that emphasized government regulation of the marketplace. Rather, Reagan prioritized the idea that the market should be the main engine of social progress. But what Reagan did that Goldwater didn't is he figured out how to combine these two elements, how to use a racial story to tell a story about why government is the main enemy in people's lives. I'm gonna play you a quote from Lee Atwater. Um, he's one of the um, architects of Republican dog whistling. 
this is very blunt language. In fact, it's racist language. My apologies for that. I nevertheless think this is just such a such an incredible admission. This is Lee, Lee Atwater gave this in an interview. Prom, uh, you know, extracted the promise that the, that that his identity would not be revealed until after his death. So this is one of these sort of deathbed confessions. You start out in 1954 by saying nigger, nigger, nigger. By 1968, you can't say nigger. That hurts your backfire. So you say stuff like uh, forced busing, states' rights, and all that stuff. And you're getting so abstract now. You're talking about cutting taxes. And all of these things you're talking about are totally economic things. And the byproduct of them is blacks get hurt worse than white. We want to cut this and we want as much more abstract than, than even the busing thing. And a hell of a lot more abstract than never knew. I want to use a term that I suspect many of you don't hear too often. What we're talking about here is a class war. It's a class war against New Deal style government that created an incredible expansion of the middle class. And it's motivated by the idea that the very wealthy should be are appropriately the main engines of social progress and that the wealthy uh, can do their best for themselves and for society by being unfettered by government. And that story is a story that is unpopular when told in an unvarnished form. Barry Goldwater Neither Barry Goldwater nor Ronald Reagan could have won election if they'd stood up and said the rich know better about how to run this society. Trust them. Dismantled the government programs that helped build the middle class. So they didn't. They told the story about race. And this story, this is the story that the right has been using for 50 years. It's also a story that many Democrats themselves began to use. You heard Bill Clinton tell exactly this story in the 90s. The story starts with fear and resent people of color. Fear them because they're criminal. They're, they're disposed to pathological violence. Resent them because they're lazy and they rip off the system. They're welfare queens. But hate government hate government. Why? Because liberal, liberal government refuses to control these dangerous, violent people. It gives more rights to criminals than to victims. It leaves our borders open. It won't talk about Muslim extremist terrorists, right? That's the rhetoric. Government refuses to control these people. Rather, liberal government coddles them. It gives them welfare. It gives them free education. It gives them free housing. Government coddles undeserving, dangerous people. And if you can't, if, you, if you're encouraged to fear your neighbor and you can't trust collective action, you can't trust government because it betrays you by supporting these fearsome, undeserving others, then trust the marketplace. You're on your own. What that means in cultural terms is go buy a gun because the state, the police won't protect you. In fact, they're coming to take your gun away. What that means in economic terms is cut taxes for the very rich, trusted job creators. This is the narrative and this is the result.
And so far, I've really been talking about and emphasizing the economic story, and you can see the economic story. And when I say there's a class war, I don't mean this in some, you know, wild-eyed, long-haired, Berkeley, oh, oh, wait a minute, I am a Berkeley professor. Well, other than that, I cut my hair short. So, so no, so no like long haired part. I got short hair. I don't mean that in some like, there should be no capitalism. There should be, I believe firmly in the regulated capitalism of the new deal that, that generated the largest expansion of the middle class the world had ever seen. And, and that is to say, capitalism is this incredible force for good, but it's also the case that as wealth begins to concentrate at the top, the wealthy begin to convince themselves that their wealth reflects something special about them that entitles them to make decisions for the rest of society. And that's a challenge that every society confronts, that every democracy confronts. Warren Buffett is more in line with what I mean by class war, right? Like, I mean, he's incredibly successful. And yet in the early 2000s, he says, there is a class war and my side is winning. And this graph, the green graph, that's this evidence. This is completely out of whack with a healthy society. And this graph only goes to 2015. It doesn't show what's happened during the pandemic. But the other thing I want to emphasize is the, the graph in state and federal prison populations. Because what you see there is that when politicians campaign with messages of racial fear, those messages don't just stay on the campaign trail. They turn into government policy. You want to understand racialized mass incarceration? It's dog was a politics, both of these together. Now, I don't mean to suggest that there aren't some people out there flying the Confederate flag um, and terrorizing children of color. That is happening. But to, but to run that as a campaign ad targeting a Republican candidate, um, you shouldn't be surprised if that backfired with a lot of whites, backfires with a lot of whites who don't like being called racist. You might be surprised, but this is true too. This ad doesn't work with a lot of people of color either. It's overwhelming to people to think that we're locked into a race war with other groups and that this is what we're voting on. Which side of the race war are we on? This sort of ad doesn't work. Here's what else doesn't work. Not talking about race at all. Trying to ignore it. Trying to hope it goes away. Here's what does work. And this is a message that um, I tested in 2017, I tested in 2020. Lots of nonprofit groups are picking this up. SCIU as the second largest labor union has adopted this. AFL-CIO is also using it. Um, it's a message that shifts the enemy. It says your enemy is not your neighbor. Um, and, and to be clear, not your neighbor because they're different by race, but also these other sort of culture war divisions. Uh, not your neighbor because they have a different vision of a family life or a different religion or a different accent or a different immigration status. Your enemy is not your neighbor. Your enemy are greedy elites who purposefully stoke division, not the wealthy in general, not, e not the Republican party, but those people who purposefully stoke social division so that they can divide and distract while they rig the rules for themselves. And what's the solution? Come together across lines of social division, demand government for all. Here's a, a version of that message. Um, 
I think I'm, I'm going a little long, so I'm going to speed up a little bit. This is a lot of text, and text in, in the context of uh, PowerPoints is just deadly. So I'm going to skip over this. Um, here's what I want to focus on a little bit. This graph, focus on the red line first. That's the dog whistle fear message. Across white, Latinos, African-Americans, and persuadable voters, all races, we already know what the red line is showing. That dog whistle fear message works. The black line is a message we tested that's the sort of, we need to stand with people of color, we need to end systemic racism, we need to prioritize racial equity. Look at how it does among whites. It loses big to the racial fear message. Look at how the black, the black um, call out racism message does among persuadable voters, all races. It loses. Among Latinos and African-Americans, it wins. But let me just emphasize, this is June 2020 when I did this, the height of the George Floyd protests. This is the best I've ever seen a call out racism message do. And support for this sort of a message among Latinos has collapsed in the month since. Um, the colorblind liberal message, the main point here is, if you look at the persuadable voters, just talking about, hey, we need healthcare, hey, we need a livable wage, hey, we need housing, that basically ties a racial fear message, but it doesn't create the sort of energy you need to actually change policy. What does? That purple bar is the message that I just skipped over that says, we're all in this together. We need to join together with people of different racial communities, but some politicians seek to divide and distract us. When we come together, we can take care of all of our families. Single best performing political message out there right now, super abstract. Let me show you Amber. Whether you're a black working class woman in Columbus, Ohio, or a white father in Kentucky, or a Latina student in Phoenix, it is the same ruling class using the same played out tactics to make us hate each other based on race, gender, religion, and sexuality. They are trying to make us point fingers in the wrong direction while we're all struggling and they are thriving. And we're struggling to build the families that we want with access to the healthcare that we need, provided by the jobs that bring us joy in order to manage the crippling debt from those fun yet incredibly expensive degrees that we kind of don't really use. We gotta change who's in charge. It's time to give someone else a chance. And it's on all of us to actually support and cheer on a new generation of leaders. We choose us. We choose us. Don't you choose us? I would choose us. Like, I mean, us. Duh. So I love Amber. You won't be surprised to learn she's from, from, from Oakland. Let me show you an ad that helped turn the Minnesota house blue. In Minnesota, we know long winters. And we know how to dig our neighbors out of the snow. Because whether it's our first Minnesota winter or our 50th, we've all been there. So when certain politicians want to divide us and make us afraid, we know that means they've got nothing else to offer. We're on to them. There are lots of ways to be Minnesotan, and all of them are greater than fear. In Minnesota, we're better off together. Vote greater than fear between now and November 6th. And people did. And people did. This is my last slide. I'm going to wrap up right here. This is a message of cross-racial solidarity that believes in each other and believes in the power of government to make our lives better. 
And listen, let's be clear, a decent society of the sort that we live in, a complex industrial society of hundreds of millions of people requires effective government. And the strategy for making sure that there has been no effective government is divide and conquer. And so if we are to have effective government, we must build a multiracial progressive movement. And by progressive, all I mean there is a, a, a movement that believes in the power of government to regulate the marketplace and make our, all our lives better. Next key point, this is a paradigm change. We need to shift how we're thinking about racism as, as something that pits whites against people of color to thinking about racism as yet another sort of, of societal division that has been weaponized against all of us. So that fighting racism, building bridges across racial lines helps all of us, some communities more than others, but it helps all of us, whites included. And finally, building social inclusion must be our North Star. And here, I can't emphasize this enough. The main strategy in the class war that we are all losing is to shatter social solidarity. But for the last 50 years, most of our social institutions have withdrawn from the idea that we need to purposefully build social solidarity. Social solidarity doesn't happen by accident. It happens because we invest in it, we encourage it, we, we create fertile grounds for it. And I wanna suggest whether you're in industry or whether you're in labor or whether you're in government, our North Star must be building social inclusion in everything we do. And I'll stop there. Thank you so much, Professor. I, I, I feel like we've all been to class. We all, we all got an A, um, but I actually wanna come back for the second lecture, which is always a, understand his call to action. Well, wonderful all. Um, thank you so much for engaging. This has been really terrific. And um, I'm also super impressed with the work that, that you folks are doing and um, this effort to really, to create inclusive housing, to address the housing crisis in Silicon Valley. Um, uh, so I'm, you know, I was saying this in the, in the group that I was just a part of, I'm coming to you with a lot of humility. I, I'm coming to you with the affect of an arrogant professor because you know I'm professionally required to have that affect. Um, but in fact, behind the facade, I recognize I'm doing the best I can to think through these ideas and, and what they imply. And a lot of people like you all are doing this on the ground. And so I, you know, I offer my thoughts with the hope that they're that they are um, important insights, but with the understanding that I could well be wrong and that you folks are really on the ground doing it. Um, thinking about, you know, how to, how to wrap up these, these, these core thoughts. Um, um, let me try and signal that what I'm communicating is partly messaging, but it's actually a, a sort of a mental paradigm shift for almost all of us. And the mental paradigm shift is occurring um, partly in terms of class. I don't think we think about class dynamics enough, but I think when we look around and see that, you know, what is it? Four individuals have as much wealth as 
60% of the world combined or whatever these, whatever, whatever these incredible statistics are, that's a problem. That's a huge problem in terms of the ability of people to thrive globally, but also nationally and then also locally. Um, so we need to start thinking about that. And again, not in these sort of hackneyed, are you for capitalism or are you against it? But rather in the more sophisticated, what is the point of capitalism? What is its role? What is, what, what is the uh, economy? What's the market supposed to be doing? Um, but mainly I wanna emphasize the paradigm change that's required around race. I think that a lot of us have internalized a, 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 a couple of ideas that I think are wrong. I think one idea is that um, race is of tangential importance to white people. That race is something they can attend to, that they should attend to, that racism is wrong, that it hurts people of color, that to be a moral person is to recognize that. Um, and, and we really need a paradigm change in which as many white families as possible come to understand that the biggest threat to their own families is racism against black and brown people. Because it's racism against black and brown people that is being weaponized to encourage people to punch down at their neighbors while society is actually being organized in a way that threatens everybody, right? They, I mean, when people ask what happened to my pension, what happened to healthcare, what happened to my schools, why have I had to take on so much debt? I mean, there's, you know, yes, there's a raft of answers, but the primary one in terms of our politics for the last 50 years is anti-Black racism weaponized through dog whistle politics. And at the same time, you know, I'm coming from a tradition of racial justice activists who are trying to figure out, well, how do we, how do we create equity? How do we create justice for communities of color? And there the paradigm has been um, white racism is the problem. And white racism is beneficial to whites, and it's not clear we can ever achieve a solution. And that needs to change too. I think for those of us coming out of a racial justice tradition, we need to get our heads around the idea that the only way forward for communities of color is through a cross-racial movement in which whites play an equal and valued role. And that's going to take a lot of hard work. That's going to take a lot of trust. And more than anything, that's going to take a lot of us resetting our imagination about who we will work with and who we won't. Right. And, and so this is this huge paradigm change. Um, let me, you know, in this sort of little mini act of self-promotion, um, I've put together a short series of videos that, that um, with the idea that people could take, a, could follow along these ideas as a course. It's called raceclassacademy.com, race-class-academy.com. It's, it's a mini course. I, I see it as a four session course. There are discussion guides along with it. Um, Part of what I'm saying is, hey, this is, a, this is a paradigm change and paradigm changes are tough. They require practice, they require conversation. And I really tried to put together these resources to facilitate that. Let me come back now and let me wrap up this way. What is our goal? And I think for me, my goal is 
a society that values and loves my children, the children of everybody else's families as well. A society that values and loves the children of everybody's families. That's the kind of society I want to build. And what does that require? That requires a, a notion of linked fate. That requires a, a, a sort of a deeply internalized ideal of social inclusion. But it requires more than an ideal. It requires hard work. We as a society and we as individuals and we as leaders of institutions need to commit to the idea that we will do the hard work of building an ethos of inclusion. And, and this, is, this is, I think, for me, one of the brightest parts of the American Revolution, but one we don't talk about nearly enough, e pluribus unum. Out of many different people, we will build one who believe in each other. We haven't succeeded yet, but that's our project. And the reason it must be our project is because the insight is as valid now as it was a couple hundred years ago. Our families can thrive only if we understand that our fates are linked with everybody else in this country and now globally. And that is not an ideal in the sense that it's, it's an abstraction. It's a recipe for action. It's what we must do. And, 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 just, and let me just end this, this way. Some people are saying, well, what does that mean in practice? Take the issue of housing. It's possible to construct policy around housing in which it makes it seem that the housing is designed to help um, um, disenfranchised people. But it's also possible to design policies around housing that make it clear that the point is to help build a society in which we know each other and care about each other. And that, the, and that the, the policies and the programs associated with it are actually encouraging people to get to know each other and that everybody in our community is benefited when we get to know and when we take care of each other, right? Um, I'll stop there. We must adopt social inclusion, social solidarity as our North Star, as a pragmatic matter, as a call to action, and not simply as an ideal. Ian, thank you so much. And I just want to thank uh, Fred and uh, our panelists and Akemi who, and the staff who have been behind the scenes really making today possible. Um, I just get to come in and do the easy part here at the end. Uh, what a dialogue. What a conversation. You know, I, I want to thank you all for being courageous, for being courageous in how we show up and how we engage across difference and dialogue. This is the only way we move forward in seeking to understand and actually joining forces in how we can make our community better for, for all. Um, it takes a lot of courage to not sit just in rooms that are choirs, but to sit across from people who fund you fundamentally disagree with. And I think that uh, the today and hopefully moving forward, we can uh, take that action of um, seeking to understand and continuing to learn uh, and make our community a better place. So in that light, I, I hope that each of you is thinking about what your own personal commitment is there, right? What's your personal commitment uh, and pledge uh, to actually uh, take what you learned tonight and apply it? Uh, and I would encourage you as well to put that in the chat. We're wrapping up here, but we've got a couple minutes. And if you could share those 
those pledges in the in the chat of what you're taking away tonight and how you want to apply that uh, in your uh, spheres of influence. Uh, we would love love to hear about what that looks like. Um, I know my pledge is going to be to continue to create. Uh, convenings and circles of courage like this, because this is what we need to do. We need to continue to have conversations about this and get smarter together uh, for the benefit of our community. So that's my, my pledge uh, to you all and ALF's pledge uh, here in Silicon Valley. ALF joins and strengthens diverse leaders, creating and supporting networks for good. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and encourage you to subscribe to The Dialogue on iTunes or SoundCloud. To learn more about ALF, visit us online at alfsv.org.